0: When Andrew asked me if I would be willing to preach one Sunday, the part of my brain that really doesn't think things through said yes before thinking about it. You know, it's typically what I do. I don't think, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'll do that, and it's, oh, no. There's a girl I work with who would fully verify this. Kara would fully verify that i come up with ideas, and then she has to help me bring those things to fruition. But after making that commitment, the other part of my brain which really should intervene more often. Um, It kind of took over and it said, oh my goodness, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? Can I back out of this in some graceful manner without God putting some big old black check mark in my column? That's what my not so logical brain thinks about. I had a choice of two Sundays to speak. One was open to whatever I wanted to talk about and then this one. Obviously, as I'm here now, this is what I chose. I thought it was the safe route, but as I've listened to Andrew's stories in stained glass over the course of the season of Lent, I began to feel woefully underqualified for the task at hand. Thanks to much support from Andrew in the form of lots of notes about these windows. And when I say lots of notes, I mean lots of notes, 11 pages of typed notes for me, just to make sure I knew, okay? Which I appreciate. (laughs) Here I am. Long story short, Here goes my best attempt at this, and hopefully it's not the worst sermon you've ever had to endure. I have attended this church since 1983, minus a few years living elsewhere. Through that time, I've always been drawn to the beauty and peacefulness that this sanctuary provides. This is a place that feels safe, warm, and welcoming to me. No matter what else is happening in life, this place has been a constant for me. However, I don't know that I ever really paid attention to the stories in the stained glass. In fact, if someone had asked me what the images appeared in the windows, I would have been hard pressed to name even one. I am loving hearing the stories of the windows. The images that once hid themselves in the beauty of the entire window now seem to jump out at me. To better understand the windows and what they tell us, I did a little research about stained glass. Beautiful windows such as these have been around for well over a thousand years. In fact, there are accounts of stained glass being used as far back as the ancient Egyptians. In the Middle Ages, when few people could read and books were scarce, the windows served as important teaching tools for the churches. The windows taught through their depictions, they glorified the saints, and shared the mission of the church. In early churches, these windows were typically close to the ground so that the people of the church could readily follow along with the stories. Today, we're going to talk about the windows that are under the balcony on the east side between the back and the east entry door. To be honest, these windows are not ones to which I paid a great deal of attention in the past, probably relating to the fact that I come from a family that always sat in the front of the church, right in the front, okay? I would like to believe it's because my great-grandmother didn't hear very well, but I think it had more to do with the fact that my mother and father believed that I and my four siblings would behave much better right in the front, okay? So, I really, I, you know, I, can, I can't say that I've, I've looked at those windows a tremendous amount, but I want, I want to share what, what I can about those. As I perused the images of these windows, I tried to find a common thread that kind of, my English teacher in me is like, I've got to put this all together. got to come with something. And then I remembered something I used to tell my kids when they were writing. I'd say, you know, nobody knows what order you wrote it in. You can write the end, and then you can write the beginning, and then you can write the middle. You can do it however you want to. So after composing everything, I added my tie-together thought here. I came to this conclusion and added it here. Those windows that we're going to talk about today teach us lessons about how we should live our lives as Christians. An image of grapes appears in the first window, which is located in the far northeast corner of this structure, in the room opposite the usher's room. We can't really see it from here. It's hidden behind the doors back there. First and foremost, we see the grapes as representative of the wine that turns into the blood of Christ at the Eucharist, or Holy Communion, the most sacred of all Christian sacraments. Just as we have seen other windows with wheat and the chalice, the grapes are a symbol of this sacrament. Words associated with fruit are seen throughout the reading of the Bible. Fruit was of great importance to the people in biblical times. Deuteronomy 8, 7 through 8 states, because the Lord your God is bringing you to a wonderful land, a land with streams of water, springs, and wells that gush up in the valleys and on the hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines, fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of olive, olive, excuse me, olive oil and honey. God promised the Israelites he would deliver them to a land that was abundant in fruit. Leviticus 25:19 states, the land will give, its, will give its fruit so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. When the Israelites are close to the promised land, Moses sends 12 men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, to investigate and bring back some of the fruit of the land. They return with a branch with one cluster of grapes suspended on a pole between them. Perhaps this is foreshadowing of what will come to pass in the New Testament. The grapes, the goodness promised from God... Jesus Christ, suspended on a pole, is representative of the suffering of Christ on the cross. One of the ways that God calls us as Christians today is through the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-23 lists these fruits. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our calling as Christians is to use these gifts of the fruits, to live abundantly in our faith, to share abundantly of the gifts. We have to use these spiritual fruits in order to have the life that Christ has promised us. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. The next window depicts the snake. Now I have to be honest with you. This is one of those creatures that I've often wondered, could Noah just have left this one off of the ark? It could have gone away, get rid of the snakes. You know, I don't have much use for them, I don't think. Not a real fan of this creature, okay? Seriously, it has no legs, and it moves faster than I do, which is no big feat. I mean, a lot of things can move faster than I can, but that that snake moving like that just really bothers me. However, it's a symbol that we frequently see in the Bible, As I was researching to speak today, I found it interesting that the snake is both a symbol of wisdom and of evil. To me, this seems to be such a contradiction. How can something be on both ends of the spectrum? The answer for me seems to lie in the very nature of the snake. If someone is bitten by a snake, obviously that's bad. The cure for the bite is a serum made from the very creature, obviously good. Genesis 3.1 refers to the snake as the most intelligent of all wild animals. However, he uses intelligence and knowledge not for good, but instead to draw Adam and Eve to the dark side, where they are aware of good and evil. I am not a purveyor of the idea that this is an evil world. I believe that people are good. If we are obedient to God, we can filter the knowledge that the world provides us in a positive manner. In this way, I can see that the snake represents wisdom combined with the obedience to God. As a teacher and parent, I have heard myself say many times something to the effect that just because you can doesn't mean you should. You have the knowledge to do many things, but hopefully that is combined with obedience to God so you know what is right and what is wrong. The snake is also likened to death and Satan. In my mind, this is what I think of when I think of a snake. This is, this is my vision of a snake. I am sure God had a purpose, and I'm just going to have to trust that he knows what it is, and it's, it's all for good, because my worldly vision just does not see the purpose for this career. Just saying. The snake's venom, its ability to strike quickly and without sound, and the lethality of its bite, all combine to make it an apt representation of death. Also... The fact that the snake can shed its skin and appear renewed makes it much like Satan, as humans are easily drawn in by the looks of something, even though underneath it's not good. Next, we see the symbol of the poor widow's offering, as represented by the coin being deposited in the box. Luke 21, 1-4 tells us, Looking up, Jesus saw rich people throwing their gifts into the collection box for the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow throw in two small copper coins worth a penny. He said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than all of them. All of them are giving out of their spare change, but she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything she has to live on. It's the idea of the first fruits, giving first to God. This woman gave all that she had, while others gave from what was left over after they had done what they wanted. Ouch! Ouch! That's a painful lesson for us. We don't like to think about that we're not giving first. Giving when you have nothing to give is a difficult challenge for us as Christians. I believe it applies to all kinds of giving, not just money, but also to giving of our time and our talents. The next window shows writing on the ground. The scriptures tell us of Jesus writing on the ground. There's no indication of what he writes just that he writes on the ground. Seems to me like there's a big piece of information missing there. I'm the kind of person who wants to know the whole story and the fact that Jesus is writing on the ground and he doesn't say, and Jesus wrote. I want to know what that is. I want to know the whole story. If you ask my husband, he will tell you that I ask lots of questions, many of them unanswerable, but I ask nonetheless. Gray areas and my OCD nature simply do not mix. Perhaps in this case, though, what he is writing on the ground is not as important as where he is writing it, on the ground, in the dirt, where it can be walked past, overlooked, and wiped out. We see the story in John 8, 1 through 11, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him. He sat down and he taught them. The legal experts and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, placing her in the center of the group. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him because they wanted to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote in the ground with his finger. Again, here's the writing and we don't know what he's writing. So they continued to question him. He stood up and replied, Whoever has sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Maybe what he wrote is not so important after all. Those who heard him went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. Obviously, Jesus is pointing out that none of us are without sin. It's the whole idea that when you have one finger pointing out towards other people's faults, you have three pointing back at yourself. Look at yourself before you point to other's shortcomings. The side message to this seems to be that our sins, written in the dirt, can be wiped out by the forgiveness of God. God knows we mess up on a regular basis, but he loves us and forgives us. That's what's so awesome. Our sins are written in dirt, not etched in stone. We can be forgiven. The next window is the boat in the storm. The story behind this is that Jesus sends the disciples ahead of him in the boat to the other side of the lake. The boat gets caught up in the storm, and the situation is really not good. They're tossed and turned all over the place. They're very frightened. And Jesus comes walking across the lake to the disciples, which logically frightens the disciples more. I'm not sure how I would react to that if I looked up and saw a man walking on water towards me. I'm guessing it would be something like, wow, I, I must be hallucinating, must be the seasickness hitting me here. That cannot be a man walking on water. Anyway, Jesus calls out to them and tells them not to be afraid. Peter wants proof that it's Jesus, so he asks Jesus to call him out to the water. Jesus does so, and Peter does as he's told, but he lets his human fear get the better of him, and he begins to sink. Duh, Peter. Bad choice, but probably the one that most of us would make. Jesus rescues him. I don't know about you, but there have been many times in my life when I was right there, in the sailboat, in the storm, thinking what the what in the world have i gotten into now and this may be one of those times I mean, i'm just saying i have probably even had the discussion in my head that went something like seriously again what am i going to do now and the right answer is always the same trust in god know that he will bring me through the storm he brought me to it and he will bring me through it why do we have such trouble with that i know for me it's a control thing it's very difficult for to meet me to be out of the driver's seat But that is the very thing that we are asked to do as Christians. Get out of the driver's seat and let God handle it. The final stained glass image is that of a plow, a common sight in our corner of the world, though not in this form. This plow requires much hot, dirty, and physical labor. It's used to create furrows in the ground so seeds can be sown. The life lesson that I see here is that we as Christians need to be like the plow. We need to put in the work to plant the seeds of Christ's good news in the world. Yes, it's hard work, but the rewards are simply amazing. Making the work of our hands constructive rather than destructive. Building up rather than tearing down. Instead of swords, spears, and fighting, we need to be more like a plow cultivating the earth. Planting the seeds of the good news of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 2.4 says, God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. Then they will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make more. These are the stories that I see in these windows, lessons about how we should live our lives as Christians. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for all who are gathered here today. We thank you for the gift that is this sanctuary. Let the stories that we see in the stained glass be lessons to us. Help us to live our lives according to the lessons from your word. Grant us the wisdom to distinguish between what the world offers and what your word offers to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.